Well, hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the College Age Movement podcast. This week we are in part three of our series, Kings, Prophets, and Prostitutes. And the idea behind the series is to look at the genealogy of Jesus, the lineage of Jesus, to, to look at the mess that brought about the Messiah. I think it's so easy for us to look at the story of Jesus and see this incredible God who made himself man in perfect form, who never sinned, and say, well, the, he must have come from some incredible people, which he absolutely did, but we'd never want to discount the fact that they were also super messy and super broken. So week one, we talked about King David and Bathsheba, and we talked about some mistakes that David made in the process of that relationship, but how God still did incredible things through it. Last week, we talked about Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and some decisions that they made over the course of their life that were absolutely messy and definitely outside the will of God, but how God still used them to fulfill prophecy time and time again. And this week, We're going to talk about a woman whose livelihood may have labeled her as messy, but she was instrumental in the promises of God coming to fruition for the people of Israel. And so what we're doing is we're looking at the story of Rahab, and it's a simple story, it's a short story, but there is definitely lessons to be learned from this incredible woman. So a little bit of context is this, is that Joshua was the ruler of the Israelite people or the leader of the Israelite people after Moses had already passed away. So Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, away from the Egyptians. But then in the 40 years in the wilderness, Moses ends up passing away and Joshua is thrust into a position of leadership. And what we do in Joshua chapter 2, which is the scripture that we'll be looking at, is we're finally seeing the Israelites taking the land that was promised to them. Jericho would mark the beginning of their possession of the land that was promised to them by God decades earlier. So Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, says this. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So the first point is this is right where you are at. Rahab is such a perfect example of something that we talk about all the time, that God will use you right where you are at. Now, Rahab was undoubtedly living as a prostitute in a way that was outside of the will of God. That's not something that he would want Rahab to be participating in, and yet She became such an important figure in scripture. She became a pillar of faith and someone who helped the the promise of God come to fruition in the lives of the Israelites. And I think it's really important that we understand this, is that even though we say this phrase all the time here at Faith Chapel, at College Age, whatever it may be, that God will use you right right where you're at, I think it's important that we understand that it's not something that we say just because it's a cute little phrase, but we say it because it is something that is absolutely fundamentally something that we believe foundationally as a community of people, that God will absolutely use us right where we're at. I think that one of the hard things that, that we deal with when, it ta- when we talk about God using us right where we're at isn't looking at other people and seeing them as messy and saying, saying, oh, I don't think God could use them. I think that we, we kind of accept that on a regular basis, that we see the mess and we see the brokenness, but we see God still use those incredible people. I think one of the hard parts is that we look at ourselves and we know our mess and we know our brokenness and we just don't really want to come to grips that God would be willing to use us because how, how could he use a messy, broken person like me? Because my mess is worse and it's dirty and it's, it's gross. And, and we go one of two ways when we start to think about our mess. Either it's not as bad as everyone else's, but so often 
we go the other way, that our mess is worse than everyone else's, and how could God possibly forgive me? How could God possibly use me? I was listening to a podcast recently by Chad Veach. He start, started talking about the voices that are in our head, that undoubtedly there's always voices in our head that we're always talking to ourselves, and there's always other things that have happened in our day or happened in our lives that speak into our lives. There have been parents, there have been teachers, there have been coworkers or bosses that have spoken truths into our lives that we hold on to, but they've also spoken lies into our lives that we hold on to. And what he talks about is our own voice in our own head and how we are constantly talking to ourselves, and that we are speaking truths or we are speaking lies into our own minds. And the phrase that he uses, he says, I want what I am to be louder than the what I am not in my head. That the promises and the positives in my head should outweigh or drown out the negatives that my mind wants to speak that, that I would understand that I'm a child of God, fully forgiven, powerful, empowered, all of those things, not I'm a failure, I have sinned, I, I have all of these things that create baggage in my life, but that when we finally come to a healthy place of our own self-talk in our mind, then the talk of other people holds less weight. Will we still take it? Will we still digest it? Will we still create dialogues through it? Oh, absolutely. There will be things that happen, but when we can have healthy self-talk, then we can process the talk of others in a more healthy way as well. And this is what I love is that I feel like Rahab had really good self-talk. The, sh- the, the voices in her head did not prevent her from doing what she knew that she had to do. Her physical position did not interfere with her purpose. She understood that she had a purpose to play. Now, part of it was out of survival, but she also knew and had faith that we can really look at and say, oh my gosh, look look at what Rahab did. She was extraordinary in the faith that she had. Now, I think it's important that we understand that God wants us to clean up some areas of our life, no doubt. But he doesn't want to wait till we're perfect because if he waited until we're perfect, we would never attain that perfection. We would die and then he would have no one to use. So he's willing to use messy, broken people. And we're going to say that time and time again. And we say it almost weekly here at College Age, that messy and broken is okay. And that God will still redeem those things and will still use us because he has used messy, broken people for millennia upon millennia. So Joshua chapter two, verses two, verse through three goes on to say this. It says, the king of Jericho was told, look, Some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent the message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy on the whole land. Now, I think that it's important that we have a little bit of cultural context here. We don't know exactly how the king finds out that the spies are there, but we can make some educated guesses. Another word that scripture uses for Rahab is harlot. In Old Testament times, that could also be translated as innkeeper. So if we add these things together, harlot, prostitute, innkeeper, what we understand is that Rahab's residence was most likely a brothel. Now, if you've ever watched spy movies or you've ever watched uh, movies or shows that have anything to do with like knights and that old times and brothels are a prominent part of these, these shows, what we find is that brothels became places of intelligence gathering, that if someone wanted to know something that was going on with people, 
that's where they went because people got into an intimate location where they thought they were safe to say things to people who maybe didn't matter or who would repeat the things that they said, but maybe people wouldn't take them seriously. And so it just happened on a regular basis. So what we find is that there's a very specific reason that the spies of the Israelites go to this brothel because they understand that there is intelligence to be gathered in this place. They're not there for other things. Um, So they're there to gather intelligence. And so most likely there were other people there that were looking and observing at the people that were around. And the king of Jericho probably had somebody planted in that area that went and told him that these Israelites had come. So it was probably a very obvious thing. Somebody had actually witnessed it with their own eyes that the the spies of the Israelites were in there and went and gave that information to the king of Jericho, thus the message to Rahab. But Rahab, even knowing that, still took a stand on behalf of the Israelites, the people who are about to invade her own city. In verses 4 through 11, it says this, it says, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know that where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know them. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you to cross when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Shion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. The next point is this, is that if God is with you, people will know. If God is with you, people will know. There was no question in the mind of Rahab that God was with the Israelites. She listed the reasons and admitted that the people of Jericho were literally melting with fear. They were so scared. They had lost courage because of the Israelites, but more importantly, because of the God that was with them. Now, this is a much different situation than you and I will hopefully ever be in. Hopefully we aren't having to invade cities anytime soon. However, the same hope should be found in us, that when God is with us, people will have no question about it. And hopefully it's not fear in our instances, but it's just awe that people would see our lives and they would see what God is doing it and they would be in awe of how God is continually working in and through us and how even when things aren't perfect, we still have faith in a God because he always works things together for those who believe in him. One of the things that we get wrong more than we get right is that we just tell people about God more than we simply show people God. We need to live our lives in a way that just show people who God is, that that God's faithfulness will be evident in our lives if we tell people who we believe and what the foundational beliefs that we hold are, and they will see fruition in our relationships and in all the things in our lives, and they will say, wow, there must be something to that because they seem to have it pretty good. And even when things aren't very good, their relationships are healthy. So even when finances aren't good, their relationships are good. And even when relationships are a little bit rocky, they still have faith that God will repair things and redeem things. And when we can do that, our words start to carry weight. Because I think that the uh, a simple truth is this, is that people will not think that your words carry weight if you do not live a life that shows God. Like, do people see truth in the God that you speak about or are your words full of emptiness? Like constantly asking ourselves that question, like, do the words that I speak hold weight? Do I show my faith? 
Do people see God at work in my life because I am constantly not just talking about him, but living for him? And I think this is one of the things that, that really frustrates me about evangelism. We hear this word all the time, evangelism, like we're going to go and we're going to tell people about the love of Jesus. And I think that's an incredible thing. But I think too often we've reduced evangelism to words spoken at people instead of lives lived for them because of Jesus. I want to say that again. We have reduced evangelism to words spoken at people instead of lives lived for them because of Jesus. We need to live lives for people because of the the love that Jesus has for for us, not just throw words at people and hope that they stick. You see, the Israelites carried God with them, and it was evident. And my hope is that we would be a community of people that has the same thing said about us, that they have God with them, it's evident. They speak about God, and they say that God is with them, and they say that God is for them, and they say that God loves them, And all of those things are evident in the way that they treat other people, in their actions, in what they do with their time, that people would say it is so evident that Jesus is with these people. There was no question in the mind of Rahab that God was with the Israelites. There was no question in the mind of Rahab that God was exactly who the Israelites had claimed him to be. We have the opportunity in the way that we live our lives to show that God is exactly who we believe him to be as well. Verses 12 through 14 go on to say say this. It says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. I love that last phrase. Not if, but when the Lord gives us this land. See, the next point is this, life for life, life for life. The spies knew the depth of what Rahab was doing for them. She was risking her life for them, and they knew that there was a debt to be paid. There was a risk that Rahab was taking. She knew that that Jericho, she was very sure that Jericho was about to be overtaken by other people. And if she didn't do this, there was a chance that she would die in that invasion. But the risk that she took meant that she could die sooner, that the king of Jericho could find out what she was doing, and he could kill her and her family, and so it wouldn't have really mattered. That was a risk that she was willing to take because she had faith in God that was with the Israelites. And I love, I love this idea, this idea of a debt being paid, because I think this is incredible foreshadowing of what Jesus did for us, his life, so that we would live our lives for him. Just like there was a debt to be paid in this story, you and I have a debt to pay to Jesus. Our lives should be dedicated to loving people and looking a little bit more like him every single day. That we are, we are making a sacrifice by following Jesus because he made the ultimate sacrifice for us. And I think it's unbelievable. Rahab had incredible faith that God was with them, a God that she wasn't even familiar with. Like this wasn't the God that she grew up worshiping. This was the God of the Israelites. But she had faith in a God that she didn't even necessarily believe in yet, right? That she didn't have personal relationship with. But I think that it was the assurance of the Israelite spies that that created faith in her. And they saw the people and they saw what God had done, right? They dried up the, the Red Sea so that they could cross it. The things that they had done to the Amorite kings, all of these things, they had heard about things and they were sure that God was with them. So they were melting in fear. There was something that was happening that created them to have an understanding and a, and a knowledge that was 
okay, there's something happening here. And I wonder if people can say that about us. Can, can we say that we have the kind of faith where it is so evident that God is with us that people start to have faith before they even have relationship with him? That they see what God is doing in our life and they're just like, well, he must be real. Because even though I don't go to church or even though I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, I am seeing significant changes in the life of someone who says they do. And because of that, I start to have faith. I told a story last night about these missionaries who, who go to, to Tijuana, Mexico, and they, they spend time in this home that doesn't have any belief in Jesus, but there's someone who's incredibly sick, and they start to pray, and they start to see healing happen, and, and all of a sudden, the family starts to believe, not just in their ability to heal, but in the God who they claim to bring with them. And I think that that is what we need to do on a regular basis, is take God with us everywhere we go, proclaim God, say that he's with us, and constantly have that be a part of our life. And if it's foundational, if it's an element of everything that we do, people will know that, and they will start to have faith if we exude faith. And I I completely understand faith can be difficult, but when we find ourselves living in it, when we find ourselves camping out in a faithful assurance of that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, it is accredited to us, and God does incredible things through it. There's a, a chapter in Hebrews, chapter 11. It's absolutely amazing. It simply begins to list action taken in faith. And by Abraham, he, he, it says, by faith, Abraham completes this and this and this and this. And this says, by faith, Isaac completes this and this and this. And then by faith, Jacob does these things and, and completes these things that have, have been placed on his heart and that he's done for, for decades. And oh my gosh, is their faith, their faith, their faith. And so it just goes and goes and goes. All these people, by faith, by faith, by faith. And then verse 31 says this, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Right? We have Abraham, Jacob, Isaac. We have these incredible men of faith, these incredible things. And then all of a sudden, in Scripture, it takes time. They call it the Hall of Faith. They, they talk about these, this incredible chapter because it's the Hall of Faith, these people who did incredible things by faith. And what we would classify as a messy, broken, imperfect person in Rahab, Scripture takes the time to say, by faith, Rahab. By faith, Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. But not only that, because of Rahab, Jericho was taken. The Spark Notes version of verses 15 through 21 is this, is that Rahab lets the spies out and she tells them, go and hide in the forest for three days. And after that, go to Joshua and tell him everything that has happened here. And the spies in response, they, they say, Bring your family to your home. We need everybody. Everybody that you want to be safe, bring them here. And we want you to put a scarlet cord in your window because it was on the Jericho wall. Put a scarlet cord out the window and we will know not to attack that home. We will, we will preserve that home and everyone in it. And this is, this is what I love about this. Think about the, the scarlet representation. The significance that a scarlet cord would hold over the opening of a home to protect it from death. You see, just before this, just decades earlier, the Israelites are in Egypt and the angel of death is coming over during the Passover, the first Passover. And what do the Israelites, what are they called to do? To, to take the blood of a lamb, the scarlet red blood of a lamb and put it over the doorpost of their home and the angel of death would pass over their home and the firstborn would not be killed. This is such a beautiful representation. Even decades later, a scarlet cord would be hung out a window 
and no death would come to that home either. Jumping a little bit ahead, uh, verses 22 through 24 says this. It says, When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days, just like Rahab had told them, until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people, pay attention to this, are melting in fear because of us. They are melting in fear because of us. They take the direct words of Rahab the prostitute and take them back to the leader of the Israelites and say they are melting in fear because of us. The next point is this, is that we need to be aware of our attitude. We need to be aware of our attitude. I think that many of us uh, would identify as people who regularly have a poor attitude in certain situations. Attitude isn't everything, but we need to be absolutely aware of it as we step into things. And the reality is that if we know that God is on our side, we should have an attitude of confidence, not arrogance, but confidence. That if the creator of the universe is on our side, we should have confidence that he is going to do what he said he's going to do. So a question that I I want to ask is this, is what kind of morale do I have spiritually? What kind of morale do I have spiritually? See, morale is an intricate part of warfare. It's absolutely huge. It's absolutely crucial, right? So as I'm stepping into my battles, what kind of morale do I have spiritually? Do I bring a defeated morale into situations that God has already declared victorious? Do I bring a defeated morale into situations that God has already declared victorious? That was a question posed by a pastor named Daniel Fusco in one of his sermons. And I I love that, that phrase because I think that we all have a tendency to bring defeated morales into situations that God has already declared victorious. In John chapter 16, it says, you're going to face all kinds of things in the world. There are going to be trials, there are going to be tribulations, but brothers and sisters, be very aware of the fact that God has already overcome the world. So everything that you're going through, all of the troubles, all of the tribulations, God has overcome those things. Have confidence. Don't bring a defeated morale into a situation that God has already declared victorious. No matter what we're up against, he has already overcome it. And then lastly, we can change the morale of others. What I love about this story is that Rahab ignited the, mor- ignited the morale of the Israelites. When they said, they are melting in fear because of us, it's because Rahab said, we are melting in fear because of you. My people are melting in fear because of you. Because of your God, we are melting in fear. And they took that direct message to Joshua. And what did that do for the Israelites? It gave them confidence. It boosted the morale. And we know that it's absolutely crucial in battle and warfare. And when you study any kind of warfare book, any kind of strategic book, any war, whether it's World War II, World War I, Civil War, whatever, the greatest leaders didn't just talk about strategy. They talked about morale. If they had confidence that they could win the battle, they were much more likely to actually win it. If you went into a battle with a defeated morale, the likelihood of winning that battle was very, very low because people go in with a defeated mindset. And we, as children of God, should never have a defeated mindset. We need to be aware that we are always in battle with the enemy, that the people around us are always in battle with the enemy. We need to have our spiritual morality at its peak, and we need to help others get theirs too, to that spot too. We need to be people who ignite the faith of others. We get to do that for each other here at College Age. We get to do that for each other out in our workplaces, in our families, in our friend groups. Rahab not only had faith that God was going to persevere and and preserve her family, She had faith that in turn gave the Israelites faith, which in turn led them to marching around Jericho and taking the city. We need to be people who do the exact same thing.
Thank you so much for uh, tuning in to the College Age Movement podcast again. I hope this is something that brings fruit, something that brings knowledge and wisdom and encourages in your week. We'd love to see you in person at College Age on Tuesday nights. We meet at 7 o'clock. We love you guys, and we hope to see you very soon.